Good morning, church family. Good morning. It is very good to see all of you. Context is king. You may have heard this maxim, this slogan quite often. Context is king. What does it mean? Well, interestingly enough, if you know the answer, it is only because you understand the underlying context of the statement. Context is king is often said regarding human communication, written or verbal. It means essentially that in order to understand what someone is saying, what someone is communicating, you have to understand the context, the surrounding circumstances and culture that it's said in. Here's an example. The sentence, give me that, give me that. It's an imperative. It's me giving an instruction to someone, right? If I'm working on my car and I've got my head under the hood and I need a tool and my friend is standing off to the side and I point at the tool and I say, give me that, he'll think that's a simple request for aid, he'll pick up the tool and hand it to me. Really easy, really simple. If I walk into a coffee shop and point at a stranger's laptop and say, give me that, I will soon be arrested. <laughs> See, the same verbal communication in two different situations carries very different meanings. In one circumstance, it can mean, hey, can you help me with this project? In another circumstance, it can mean, I'm robbing you. So, as you can see, context is king when it comes to communicating effectively. We say context is king a lot when talking about online discourse uh, specifically because of how difficult it can be to properly convey context in that medium. And to be fair, we have built communication systems that don't lend themselves to including context very easily. A huge portion of our nation's dialogue happens on twitter.com where you can only include 280 characters in a message. Now, how effectively can you communicate your context on a website that trades and pithy slogans and one-liners? It's not very well. Where the phrase context is king really comes to bear is when we study the Bible, though. That's when it becomes very, very crucial. The Bible was written thousands of years ago in a very different historical and cultural context, so understanding that culture is key to understanding Scripture. You know, you'll hear endless funny stories and jokes about people who have prayed to God, seeking guidance, and then they open their Bible, and the first verse they see is something like Hosea 1-2, go and marry a prostitute and have children with her. Or... Amos 4.4, go to Bethel and sin. Um, taking scripture out of its proper context can be humorous, but it is a deadly serious error to make. Amen. When we fail to contextualize the scripture we're reading, we risk improperly understanding God. That's a crazy big risk to take, given that our eternity rests on knowing him. Today's text is Genesis 38. And it requires a lot of contextualization to understand. You can begin flipping there in your Bibles. And just to prep you, this, this passage has a very sexually oriented plot. Um, some may find it uncomfortable. I find this particular passage's uh, inclusion in Genesis to be profoundly fascinating. And we'll talk about that sort of towards the end. But I think I'm going to argue that the main point of the text is this, that God will profoundly change us when we confront our sin. God will profoundly change us when we confront our sin. If you're a note taker, I think we can break this text up into three sections. We have the first section, which is about Judah's sons, Judah's sons, verses 1 through 11. Then Judah's sin, verses 12 through 23. And then lastly, Judah's shame, 24 through 30. So Judah's sons, verses 1 through 11. Judah's sin, verses 12 through 23 and Judah's shame, 
verses 24 through 30. So first up, let's read verses 1 through 11, Judah's sons. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brother, his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So, yikes. What a fun section. Thank you for asking me to preach this, John. This John. Uh, all right, so much like Lucille Ball, this passage has some splaining to do. So uh, first of all, why are we even talking about Judah? I thought we were finally in the Joseph narrative, right? It seems as though the authors of Genesis just decided to take a detour right at the start of the Joseph narrative to talk about Judah, talk about another one of the sons of Israel. We've mentioned Judah a handful of times in the series because as we already knew, know, Judah will be the royal line of Israel, his descendants, are to be the kings of Israel, and ultimately from his line will come the king of all kings, Jesus Christ. That's pretty cool. This chapter, as we will see, becomes hugely important for understanding that royal lineage. Okay, so we get the significance. It shows us the royal line of Israel, but why is it placed right here in the story of Genesis? Well, this is particularly because the narrator of Genesis is trying to compare and contrast Judah in chapter 38 and Joseph in chapter 39. In chapter 39, we will see Joseph be an upstanding servant who flees sexual immorality in the episode with Potiphar's wife. But in chapter 38 here, we see Judah become filled with self-righteous indignation while indulging in sexual sin. Genesis is comparing and contrasting these two characters. And we'll see this all play out more in section three. But that's the basic explanation of why this chapter is here. It matters a whole lot to the royal line of Israel, and it is meant for us to compare and contrast Judah and Joseph, and we'll do that in, in section three. First, Judah turns aside to an Adullamite named Hira. Adullam is a Canaanite city not too far from where Jacob's family is, and Judah's turning aside basically means that he went to stay with Hira. He went to uh, visit him, and Hira hosted him. Now, Judah's leaving his family is not exactly good news. It forebodes something bad happening, not being in his regular community, you know. Then in the next verse, Judah marries a Canaanite. Oh, no! This verse doesn't actually say he married her, only that he slept with her, but down in verse 12, it clarifies that they were, in fact, married. Now, we know from Genesis so far that intermarriage with Canaanites is 
not looked favorably upon. Both Isaac and Jacob were given specific instruction by their fathers to not marry Canaanites. Jacob never gave a sweeping pronouncement to his kids that they couldn't marry Canaanites, but I think we can assume that Judah was familiar with his family's custom. This custom, which actually later becomes Levitical law for the Israelites. So you may ask yourself, why does anyone care if these guys are marrying Canaanite women? Well, God very clearly seems to care. That's why. God would not have required this level of holiness from his people without a very clear reason why as well. And the reason is clear. The choice of your spouse is perhaps the most life-shaping decision that you will make. Who you decide to partner up with and run the race of your life with will have profound impacts on literally everything that comes afterwards. This rings true for the Israelites and the Canaanites. The Canaanites come from a godless background where they worship idols and sacrifice children and are full of darkness, depravity, and indulgence. For, for one of God's chosen people to walk into that culture by way of a spouse is foolishness. Rather, God desires that his people marry or partner up with, that is, those who honor him those who won't drag each other to hell by their indulgence and indifference towards God. This principle is still in effect today for God's people. This is the underlying reason why we as Christians consider it profoundly unwise, even sinful, to marry people who are not Christians. We want to partner ourselves with, yoke ourselves to those people who want to work for the kingdom of Christ. So be wise when seeking out a spouse. If you want to look more like Christ, Find a, spice, find a spouse that wants to do that too. If you can find spices that want to look like, more like Christ, let me know. Anyway, Judah marries this Canaanite woman and she bears to him three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Judah then marries Er, his eldest, off to Tamar. Tamar's uh, name means palm tree, by the way. It kind of gives uh, a connotation of, of beauty and of fruitfulness. Problematically, it seems like Judah was not, has not raised his sons well, and Er turns out to be a terrible, wicked man. So terrible and so wicked that God decides to strike him dead before he ever has children with Tamar. We don't know what Er did that was so wicked. We don't know what God saw fit to kill him for. But we do know uh, by the clear testimony of Scripture that God is a just judge. He didn't do this on a whim, he didn't do this pedantically. He very intentionally put air to death for crimes that were worthy of it. And we can, we can trust that. Now this is where context as king comes into play. The context comes in the form of an ancient land that, we don't that, that don't have many of the institutions that we have today to safeguard us from harm. This story takes place in a culture where people will regularly violate, abuse, and kill one another and there is no recourse once the damage is done. There is not a government or a branch of law enforcement for them to appeal to. Someone could wrong you in extraordinary ways in this culture, and you could do nothing about it. There's no retribution in store for them. This idea is completely foreign to the way we live now, so it's kind of hard to grasp. So what was to be done if you were wronged? Well, your family would fight for you. Your family would go to bat for you. Similar to this, there are no rigorous food or health institutions in, in place in this culture. So if you're aging out of your working years, if you're aging out of the time that you're able to grow food and pro provide for yourself, how are you going to survive? 
Well, your family provides for you. There's no retirement fund, there's no 401k, there's no Roth IRA to make contributions to. Your kids rise up and take care of you. So for Tamar's husband to die without giving her children to take care of her is horrible news for Tamar. And here enters the Israelite practice of leveret marriage. It was customary that if a man died, his brothers would assume the responsibility of taking care of his wife, guarding her from the abuses of the world and providing her with her own offspring to take care of her in her own age, her old age. A brother would marry his sister-in-law in order to provide her with the cultural and institutional protection necessary for her to live her life. It sounds strange to our modern ears, but that is what happened. And it's later written into law in Deuteronomy 25, and it plays a huge role in the plot of the book of Ruth. So to spare Tamar this fate of destitution, Judah marries her off to his second son, Onan, and instructs Onan to have children. He does this so that Tamar can have children of her own and so that Onan can raise up children for the continuation of his brother's name. Now that last part is key. This child will be considered heirs, even though it's Onan who's the actual father. Onan doesn't like this. Why? Well, because this child will then get the preeminence of the firstborn. This child will be treated as the eldest of Judah's grandchildren and will get a greater share. Onan, now that his brother is dead, selfishly sees that his children could get the preeminence of the firstborn if only he doesn't have children with Tamar. So then Onan uses Tamar for his pleasure, but when the time comes, wastes his semen on the ground, denying her children. God views Onan's behavior as wicked, self-serving, disgusting, and strikes him dead alongside his brother Er. More tragic news for Tamar in this situation. So now by the custom of leveret marriage, it is Shelah's turn to take Tamar as a wife. Judah should marry Tamar to Shelah. But Judah doesn't want to be without sons, and the last two guys that married Tamar died. So he's fearful that if he does it a third time, it will cost him his last son. Instead of recognizing that his son's wickedness is what brought death to them, he's blaming Tamar in his heart. So he tells Tamar essentially, go back to your father's house and wait until Shelah is older so that you can marry him then. Tamar obeys, but as we will see, Judah has no intention of keeping his word here. All of the behavior in this section may sound peculiar to our modern ears. The leveret marriages, the preeminence of the firstborn, the limitations on who you can marry. But that's why context is king. Because what these customs teach us is that God wanted cultural institutions for his people that would be good for them. He wanted women and children to be protected through the practice of leveret marriage. He wanted there to be a peaceful transition of power from father to his sons by the preeminence of the firstborn. He didn't want brothers warring with each other at every chance that they got. So the firstborn is the preeminent one. And he wanted his people to marry those who would spur them on towards godliness, not those who would drag them into depravity. All of these are good ends to which God works. And he works them in the cultural context that seem strange and alien to us. But we also want to do everything in our power to protect women and children. We also want to live peaceably with our brothers. We also want to stir one another on towards godliness and good works. These cultural practices were intended for this very purpose. Praise God that he meets us where we're at in our cultural contexts. 
He is good and kind to us, drawing near in the face of trouble and affliction. Let's read the next section, Judah's sin, verses 12 through 23. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, uh, the Adolamite, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will give you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give to you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place say, no cult, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we will be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So Judah has withheld his youngest son from Tamar, and she realizes this and takes matters into her own hands. She hears that Judah will be around her area of Canaan and decides to disguise herself, seemingly as a prostitute, and waits for him. Judah wants to purchase her services, and so they strike a a wicked bargain. The price will be a young goat. But as collateral, she wants his signet, his cord, and his staff. A signet and a cord would be a type of necklace and a locket, the signet being the the locket, basically. And it would be a form of identification in Judah's community. You'd press this signet into a wax puddle to make a seal that would identify a letter or something like that. So this is essentially Judah giving away his driver's license and social security number as collateral for this young goat that he's offering. This is a crazy price for him to pay. Tamar conceives by Judah and then returns to her father's house. Judah tries to send uh, a goat by Hira and in the process realizes that the cult prostitute he slept with is gone. She's run off with some of the most culturally significant items that Judah owns. And what does he do in response? He says, bury it, bury it. He says, I'll eat the cost if no one knows what I've done lest I be humiliated. Haven't we done this before? Well, not exactly this, hopefully, but... (laughs) Haven't we tried to cover our sin in order to avoid its effects? Haven't we seen with fear in our hearts that, oh no, what I've done is going to bring ruinous consequences upon me and then run as far as we can away from them? I know I have. There's always this thought that my shame drives me to. If only I can wait long enough until my sin doesn't matter anymore. If I can just keep this secret hidden from everyone, then one day in a few months or a few years or a few decades or maybe when I'm dead, I won't have to deal with the consequences of it. 
All the while, the shame of my iniquity eats at my heart and steals my joy. All the while, I'm consumed from the inside by my own darkness. Don't we all know this feeling, church? I'd be willing to bet that we do. You know what the scriptures consistently refer to this feeling as? Slavery. Slavery. Slavery to sin. It's a sacrifice of self for the purpose and progress of darkness, evil, and wickedness in your own heart. To hide your sin and let it eat at your soul is to enslave yourself to it. We see in John 8 that Jesus says that all who are, practi- all who are, practice- all who are practicing sin are enslaved by it. But, but the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And what truth is he talking about? Well, all of Romans 6 is about slavery to sin. Romans 6, verses 16 through 18 say, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I said this at the start, that I think that the main thrust of this passage is about the transformative nature of confronting your sin and not letting it fester and grow in your heart, confessing it and exposing it to the truth of the gospel revealed in Jesus Christ. God profoundly changes us when we confront our sin. And we'll see how this plays out in the last section of this chapter, Judah's shame, the last six verses. 24 through 30, Judah's shame. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose they are. The signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Here we have the culmination of all the action in this chapter, all the deceit, the depravity. Three months after Judah sleeps with Tamar, she begins to show, and Judah immediately pronounces the death sentence on her. Let her be burned, he says. Judah, who seems to have blamed Tamar for the death of his first two sons, now sees an opportunity to be rid of her entirely. He's eager about putting her to death. Judah's hypocrisy in this pronouncement should be recognized. He who had slept with a prostitute mere months ago demands the death sentence for a woman who's been caught in sexual immorality. I can't help but feel like we do this as well. How high-handed can we be about sins that we ourselves committed earlier in life? 
This is the mistake of the person who perceives themselves as mature. This is the mistake of a person filled with pride. To look at someone else who sinned in the same way that you did. And to treat them with scorn because of it. Remember, Christian, that Jesus let the immoral woman wash his feet. And when his company objected, he told them, He who has been forgiven much loves much. If you have been forgiven much, and you have, you ought to love much. If a person is wrestling with a sin that you have wrestled with, have compassion. Love them. They desperately need it. They desperately need to be supported and shown the love of Christ. Do not, do not look down upon them in a high-handed way because, you know, you were able to kill that sin and they weren't. To do so is foolish and hypocritical. You only killed that sin because the Spirit empowered you to anyway. Left to your own devices, you would remain enslaved to, to sin for the rest of your days. Thanks be to God that he chose to free you from it, to lead you away from that pit of despair. Don't now turn and condemn like Judah does here. Very unfortunately for Judah, Tamar had in her possession an Uno reverse card. <laughs> she had his signet cord and staff. She presents them to him, and he is immediately humbled. Can you imagine this embarrassment, the humiliation? Can you imagine how he had feared for months that a moment like this was going to arise where his sin would be exposed? Only for it to come to fruition in a way that was far worse than he had imagined. He didn't know the depth of his sin until he was confronted with this evidence. He didn't understand how deeply he had wronged Tamar till this very moment. And now it was on display for all to see. How does Judah respond? Notice he doesn't lash out in anger. He doesn't deny it or try and hide it. He admits and confronts his sin. He says, she is more righteous than I. And then we have a concluding birth narrative for Zerah and Perez. Following the theme of Genesis, Perez the younger will end up being the royal line, the forefather of David. Perez actually means breach, funnily enough. So whenever the midwife says, what a breach you've made for yourself, she's naming him then, essentially. So he has been named for breaking out in front of his brother. One commentator called this episode a uterine struggle, which added nothing to the passage, but I thought it was funny. Um, but I want to return to Judah's response again. He says, she is more righteous than I. And that last phrase in 26 is so crucial that he did not know her again. He did not sleep with Tamar again. Why is it crucial? Because this indicates repentance. That Judah turned from his sin and repented after being confronted with it. Judah is the royal line. The preeminent line. The line of the kings. Yet he is fourth born among his brothers. Why? Why? Well, we remember back in chapter 34 that Simeon and Levi, the second and third born respectively, disqualified themselves from this honor by deceit and violence. Though their anger may have been justified, their rash harshness and their judgment will bring trouble upon their family. And we remember from chapter 35 that Reuben, the firstborn, disqualified himself by sleeping with his father's concubine in a desperate grab for power. So the firstborn, secondborn, and thirdborn are all disqualified from this place of prominence in the, in the family of Israel. Thus, it falls to Judah to be the preeminent line. But Judah just made a mess. Judah just made a huge mess in this chapter. Why is he not disqualified? He just married a Canaanite against his family's judgment. 
deceived a woman he was responsible for caring for, and then slept with a prostitute. This guy, this guy gets to be the royal lineage? It's worth mentioning that Tamar is included in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, alongside three other women, Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba. These four women, alongside Mary, reveal something about the way that God works out his will. All five of these women were put into strange, peculiar, abnormal marital situations. Situations that would have caused them to be gossiped about, to be slandered and embarrassed. But through them, God brought the glorious King Jesus. What an incredible tale. The pain of that social unrest for them became the all-consuming goodness of Jesus Christ. Still, it's consistently shocking to me that the Israelites include this chapter in the narrative of their story. It humiliates the father of their kings. It denigrates him in a way that few other characters in scripture are. Why is this guy, through the son of Perez, the father of David, why is this guy the forefather of Jesus Christ himself? Why? It's because he repented. He sinned, yes, in horrible ways, but he repented. And we don't see this repentance from Reuben, Simeon, or Levi. In fact, without this chapter, we wouldn't know why Judah suddenly becomes something of a good man in chapter 44. Chapter 44, he will throw his life on the line for the sake of his brother and his father. Imagine that, the same Judah who had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery will soon lay his life down for his brother. That's an incredible reversal, an incredible turning point in the life of Judah. God profoundly changed Judah when he confronted his sin. He didn't even choose to confront it either. He was kind of forced into it, but the fact that he faced it and owned up to it radically changed this man. And there's an underlying truth and theme here in Genesis. The people of God are not those who are good. They're those who repent and believe. Not immediately, not perfectly, but increasingly, those who repent and believe. This is what the narrator is trying to show us by comparing Judah to Joseph. In chapter 39, we will see that Joseph tempted into a situation of, is, to, is tempted into a, sex, a situation of sexual immorality, and yet he flees at great cost to himself. Joseph flees from the opportunity to commit adultery, and he's punished for it. Compare that to Judah, who seeks out a prostitute in this chapter. Isn't it shocking that Joseph is not the preeminent line? That he's not the line from which Jesus will come? Judah is a fornicator, and Joseph is one of the most morally upstanding characters in all of Scripture. Judah is the Judas who sold Joseph out. But the people of God are not those who are morally upstanding, first and foremost. They are those who repent and believe. They are those who turn from their son and put their faith in Christ. That doesn't give us license to, to be immoral. God still values righteousness. On the topic of repentance, there's a quote, I think, from Mark Dever's book on discipling. I looked for it and I couldn't find it. But it says something to the effect of repentance is not a promise that you will never sin again. It's a declaration of mortal war on your sin. The idea there being that Christians will not live at peace with their sin. Repenting means declaring a war on your sin. You commit to fighting each other until one of you dies. You or your sin, you fight to the death. 
Some genuinely repentant Christians may not experience freedom from a sin by the time they die, but if they're a genuine believer, they'll be fighting all the way. So Christian, I encourage you to fight. Look inward to yourself, confront your sin, confess it to others, drag it out into the light where it will wither and die. Wage war. Confronting your sin will radically change who you are. In the book Deeper by Dane Ortland, which is like a sequel to Gentle and Lowly, by the way, if, you're, if you like that one. Ortland writes, what we do at conversion and what we continue to do 10,000 times thereafter is not ask God to give us, uh, give our otherwise ordered lives a little boost from heaven. What we do is collapse. We let the despair about who we are left to ourselves wash over us. We confront our sin head on. Then a little later he says, despair is not an end in itself, of course, but it is a vital element of a healthy spirituality. It cannot be bypassed. One reason some Christians remain shallow their whole lives is that they do not allow themselves ever more deeply throughout their lives to pass through the painful corridor of honesty about who they really are. This was the mistake of the church at Laodicea. Jesus diagnosed their error. He said, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. That's the error we make when we bury our sin in our hearts. That's the error we make when we let our shame compel us to not share, to ignore it so it can eat us alive. We say loudly as the Laodiceans do, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, I don't need anything. I'm doing fine. We haven't realized that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What a destitute state we find ourselves in. We're broken. And where will we go? In that moment, Jesus speaks to us and says, Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and I am gentle and lowly at heart. Matthew 11. Ortland writes, You don't have to go through security to get to Jesus. You don't have to get in line or take a ticket. No waving for his attention. No raising your voice to make sure he hears you. In your smallness, he notices you. In your sinfulness, he draws near to you. And in your anguish, he is in solidarity with you. What we must see is not only that Jesus is gentle toward you, but that he is positively drawn toward you when you are most sure he doesn't want to be. It's not only that he is not repelled by your fallenness, he finds your need and your emptiness irresistible. We have a good and gracious Savior, church. It's like the hymn says that we'll sing in just a minute. All the fitness that he requireth is to feel your need of him. You feel your need for Jesus. In the depth of your soul, for freedom from enslavement to sin, Jesus stands ready and waiting with overflowing love for you. If you're being eaten alive by your own evil because you do not know Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, what he can do for you, even now, 
please come talk to me. Come talk to an elder or the person you came with. Jesus Christ stands ready to accept you with open, loving arms. Not because any of us are good or deserving of the salvation that he offers, but because he delights to take the burden of those who know that they cannot carry it themselves. He is a good and gracious Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us a repentant people, people who are eager to turn to you in the face of our iniquity and trust in your good and gracious redemption. I pray that you would strengthen our faith in the face of our sin, remembering that as we feel so often that we repel and repulse you, that it is actually then that your heart draws most near to us. Thank you for that truth, Father. Thank you for your Son by whom we can be saved. And thank you for your sovereign plan revealed to us through Genesis. It's in Christ's perfect and holy name we pray. Amen.